Classmates, friends, families, and guests, welcome to the last lecture for the class of 2008. My name is Eric Torgerson, and I am a biology major, senior here, um, and I'm also a science education student teaching next fall. Uh, the last lecture is a student-elected faculty member chosen to address us for one last learning experience. And this year, we elected as a senior class Professor Dan Forstner, instructor in the education department. When I think of the word danger, there are many people and experiences that come to mind, but one man that will always top the list is Dan. Famous for his name game at the beginning of each class that he teaches, in which everyone's names and a word starting with the same letter is drilled into our brains, Dangerous Dan, who doesn't like dungeons, was born. Between riding through 48 states in the back of a greyhound and simply braving the terrifying world of a junior high English teacher, Dan has truly lived up to his name. At St. Olaf, Dan has put his heart into helping future teachers reach their fullest potential. As an instructor for educational psychology, elementary education, first year writing, and interims to schools in the Twin Cities and New York City, he has had a profound impact on everyone that has the privilege of taking a class from him. In addition, his role as a mentor and an advisor has been irreplaceable. His advice, his genuine care for people, and his ability to listen as if what you are saying is the most important thing in the world certainly sets him in a class of his own. As a teacher committed to excellence in education, he has done what we all aspire to do as we take what we have learned and leave the hill, truly exemplifying what it means to make a difference in the world. We are fortunate to have Dan here to celebrate with us today, as this is also his last lecture at St. Olaf, returning next year to work in the public schools and continuing to impact young students. It is now my privilege to introduce Dan Forstner. This uh, actually all started with Eric. Uh, he sent an email to some ed students, and they were pretty sneaky about it, but they ran an underground campaign for my selection. And uh, I received a phone call from Nathan Solon from alumni about it, and he called me and told me about this last lecture program, and I didn't really understand why he was calling me. I was wondering if he was maybe just calling all the faculty to tell them about great programs that St. Olaf offers. <laughs> and then I started to get the sense that maybe he was gonna tell me who won, and I was confused by that too, like why would he call all the professors and tell each of them individually? <laughs> and then finally, it dawned on me that I had been selected. Um, and so I'm grateful for the education students and I'm grateful for the students who didn't know me but listened to their education major friends. <laughs> As I stand here, I can't help but uh, remember Rob Culligan. Rob Culligan was my admissions counselor from St. John's University. He came to Fargo-Shanley in a crowded little guidance office and talked to me about St. John's. Um, St. Olaf never came to Shanley, Fargo-Shanley. <laughs> Not sure why, but well, I wasn't sure why, and then I listened to Garrison Keillor once, and he described the Norwegian ancestors going across the Minnesota Plains looking for a place to settle. They crossed the Red River 
and realized they had gone too far. <laughs> and they recrossed the Red River and headed back into Minnesota. Anyways, Rob Culligan was the senior speaker for his class at St. John's. And if you know anything about St. John's, I suppose the football team, the Johnny Bread, and hopefully the Abbey Church. Uh, the Abbey Church is the physical center, psychological center, moral center, you know, of course, spiritual center of the campus. Uh, you can see the concrete bell banner from Highway I-94 on your way to Fargo. Um, the road leading into St. John's goes directly to the Abbey Church and it stops there. So here's Rob Culligan in the church graduation. Behind him is where you know, the monks usually are, but all the faculty are there in the School of Theology. And out in the crowd are the graduates and parents and family. Um, stained glass windows, you know, and four years of hard work at St. John's and he steps up to the podium and takes in the scene, looking awestruck. And these are the first words that he says. So this is what the inside of the church looks like. <laughs> yes, mother, that, that's not funny. He was a bad example. And happy birthday. Happy 73rd birthday, mother. My parents and three of my sisters, Deb, Judy, and Jackie are here. Uh, Sarah's in California, who wasn't able to make it. Um, I think it's appropriate that we have the seniors mixed in with members of your family, parents, brothers, sisters, everyone. Um, because seniors, your accomplishments are shared by us. Now I know that paper that you had to finish at three o'clock in the morning, we were sleeping. So we, we didn't help with that. But in many ways, not just during the four years with the care packages and the phone calls and the emails and all of the support, but the entire 21, 22 years they've been supportive. Uh, when I think of my own family, you know, it's not just academics that you think of that has shaped you, but I think of when I was six years old and gonna have surgery and my mother, mother was there when I fell asleep I was very scared and wanted someone there, and she was there when I woke up again. And I remember with my dad how we bonded so much over baseball and playing catch on the yard and all of that. And both of them um, always seemed to be on message about what I needed to be working on. Um, I think they had private talks about me. Um, and often in high school, the message was that, boy, you need to loosen up. You're taking your schoolwork too seriously. Uh, an unconventional message for a parent, perhaps, parents perhaps, but certainly the one that I needed. So I guess I would encourage you, you know, during celebration weekend to have those stories with your family, not just what's happened recently, but what's happened in the last 22 years. Um, tell those stories that need to be retold. Now, um, we actually also created a story during my graduation weekend. Um, my parents love telling this story because they're the virtu virtuous ones and I'm the villain. I, um, you know, basically the plan for packing. Um, my father showed up a week before 
and picked up the couch and the chair, and the plan was that I'd put everything in neat boxes, and then he'd, uh, we'd be ready to go Sunday morning of graduation. Well, senior week came, and I was busy. And <laughs> after finals, my room kept getting more and more trashed, to the point where on Saturday night when I came in, it was so messy that I decided to cross the hallway and sleep in an empty dorm room. Next thing I remember is the sound of my real dorm room opening and the sound of my father's voice, and he was saying a lot of things to one of my sisters, and I can't remember what he said, but I can summarize it. Angry. <laughs> so I encourage you to tell those stories. Um, as many of the education students know, I've taught here for five and a half years, and this summer I will be leaving St. Olaf to teach English in a Twin Cities middle school. Now, I blame the St. Olaf students for this perplexing decision. I was actually teaching middle school before I came here, and I came on the verge of becoming a burnt-out educator. St. Olaf students, you have rejuvenated my spirits. Your idealism, your energy, your hope, I'm a much better person now and a much better teacher because of you. My wife, Agape, and daughter, Althea, are here today. And to my education students, I can offer the highest compliment. I would be proud someday if you were to teach my child. My talk today, When Fargo Meets the Bronx, Life Without a Safety Net. I'm gonna tell some of my story, but it's really not about me. Consider me an advanced scout that's ventured out into the world. I graduated in 1987, and I have some things to report back to you. Um, you can also consider your parents and older family members to do that. I'm reminded of Mark Twain and what he says about his father getting wiser the older that he got. Um, to revisit and really consult your not consult as much as converse and learn from your family members. Now, I'm gonna look a little bit at the field of education, but in an inclusive way. Um, you know, certainly any subject, if you look at it closely, there's applications to everything else. And so the question I'd like to throw out is, what's the problem with education? Now, I know that seems like an absurd question as we look around here at our graduates. You are intellectually curious multi-talented, socially concerned, obsessed with your Facebook page. <laughs> but look how well you turned out. It's really hard to be cynical about our school system. What's the problem with education? The question was asked in the 1992 governor's debate. Norm Coleman, Roger Moe gave safe enough answers that I can't remember how they responded at all and then it came to candidate Ventura. It's the parents. Gotta admire the guts of someone that doesn't think he needs the parents' vote for a Minnesota election. <laughs> now, I know my audience today, so I want to renounce and repudiate and reject that statement by then-candidate Ventura. Um, I sometimes also imagine, what if I was Governor Ventura's friend? Let's say 
I was also wrestling with him. Um, <laughs> maybe we were roommates in the same dorm during the tour, you know, going to SummerSlam and everything. And well, I need a name, of course, so maybe I'm the dangerous professor. And I need a move, so maybe when I'm in the ring and my opponent comes in, maybe I start to give a lecture on the benefits of cooperative learning. And that gets my opponent so angry that I can use the anger against him and pin him just lightly with a dry eraser marker. <laughs> of course, I wouldn't win all of my fights, um, but it wouldn't be that someone controlled me. It would be that my opponent learned to control himself. Who says pro wrestling can't be profound? But anyways, if I was his friend, I would reject his friendship um, or anything else, um, just so that you don't bother me after the speech about this comment I made about parents. Now, many, what's the problem with education? I want to take a very narrow focus and look at one aspect. Many studies estimate that after five years, there is only about a 50% retention rate for teachers. In Teach for America in Texas, one study suggested that the retention rate was only 20% after three years. One of my first-year writing students, Jess Matthews, found out in her paper that she just turned into me that special education department sometimes has 100% turnover in three years. Now, we can talk about possible solutions to how to address this, and some of these are obvious as far as improving the working conditions for teachers. Um, but I would like to take a specific idea that I think could make a big difference and is applicable to you as you look to your futures. Do you think in the field of education we need a little less Don Quixote and a little more Lisa Simpson? In other words, a little less living in the fantasy world and a little more like Lisa, seeing an absurd, sometimes even complex situation and speaking the truth about it and working from there. As you probably know, many of the teacher movies encourage life in the fantasy world. Um, most teachers are unlikely to have the charisma of Robin Williams from Dead Poets Society. Most teachers are unlikely to have their students score so high on standardized tests that the educational testing service demands an investigation the students retake the test and score even higher. All of this with Jaime Escalante and Stand and Deliver. Uh, it's unlikely also that in the spring semester of a senior year, you as a teacher will completely heal a classroom's racial divide, beat the class bully in a boxing match, change everyone's aspirations from a low-wage job to a college diploma, and have Lulu write a song at graduation extolling your greatness. But that was Sidney Poitier in To Sir With Love. You might be wondering where I'm going with this. This doesn't sound like something appropriate for Celebration Weekend. Seems like the message so far is don't follow your dreams. Try and you will fail. <laughs> Reach for the stars and you will be incinerated. Please hang in there with me as I offer a few ideas more on the romantic approach to teaching. 
No child left behind states that all children will test as proficient, and that's all children, will test as proficient or advanced on state tests of math, reading, and science by the 2013-2014 school year. If we step back and go to the goals 2000, by the year 2000, we were supposed to have all schools in the United States, all classrooms, completely free of drugs, violence, and offer a disciplined environment. Here's a California academic standard for you, and I'm not gonna have you talk amongst yourself afterwards I, to see if you know the answers, but this standard states that students will analyze the geographic, political, economic, religious, and social structures of civ civilizations of Islam in the Middle Ages, of China in the Middle Ages, of the sub-Saharan civil civilizations, of Japan in the Middle Ages, of Europe in the Middle Ages, of Mesoamerican and Andean civilizations. You might want to guess what age this is for. It's for junior high school. There's also a phrase that's thrown out sometimes called the teacher-proof curriculum. The idea that you could create a script for a teacher and all the teacher has to do is read it and he's guaranteed to have success. I also remember once when I received a pep talk before a tutoring job started in the fall and the speaker said that if you just have the attitude, your students will pass the Minnesota Basic Standards Test. It's all in your attitude. If you believe it, it'll for sure happen. The uh, students I was working with after school were homeless, and while certainly helping them as much with academics was important, uh, there was so many other factors affecting their lives, and focusing so much on testing struck me as a little bit like focusing on renovating your kitchen while the house is burning down. In general, I think when we talk about these ambitious goals with education and how we need to achieve them, I feel like it's like grabbing water and squeezing real tight, and there's not much left. And I think you know from your four years at St. Olaf that learning can be a very messy, uneven process, and that if you try to control it too much, for example, if a professor is just guiding you every step of the way and there's no unknown factors, a lot less learning takes place. Some of you know firsthand about stilted discussions where it felt like people were just trying to impress or say what the professor wanted to hear um, and just how energizing sometimes dorm conversations were about great ideas. So again, the idea here that we need to let go of some of the control, the romantic vision that we can just get there if we have strong enough will. Now, I'm gonna ask another question here. What happens when in someone with teacher movies dancing in his head goes into the classroom? I am one of those people. Back in 1989, fresh from working two years with homeless, mentally ill homeless in New York City, I accepted a job teaching at a Catholic school, fourth graders in the South Bronx. Now the summer before I started teaching, I was trying to get all of the advice I could. Um, most of it was about control, and sometimes the metaphors we use with education, especially urban education, makes it sound like it's a war, a battle, that kind of thing. And I was told time after time that you had to have control right away or it is lost. Once the toothpaste is out of the tube, you can't get it back in. My first day, I distinctly remember getting up in my Crown Heights, Brooklyn Brownstone, getting over to the four train, 
all the way up Manhattan to 125th Street, crossing the 6th train, feeling sick to my stomach, 138th Street, Brook Avenue, Cypress Avenue. I walk up the stairs, and at the top of the stairs is a dead rat. The English major in me recognized that as a symbol. <laughs> and a bad symbol. I proceeded on my way, got into my classroom, and my first week, first day began. Now, I don't think the first day went that bad. I just know that I seemed disorganized, less than smooth speaking. I remember when I introduced my name, I wrote it on the board, Mr. Forstner, and then just to help them remember it, I said it's a little bit like force, and I kind of wanted to plant that I was really tough. But that didn't seem to be working because on day two, you know, my quiet signal was this, that I would lift this up and then everyone else would lift their fingers up and then everyone would get quiet. Um, you know, a little bit like holding lighters up at a stadium or something. Um, it wasn't working by day two and by day three, I knew I was in trouble because Victor volunteered to read the prayer and he said, dear God, I hope we behave better for Mr. Forstner today. And I was kind of hoping that they didn't notice that behavior was a big problem. <laughs> and the fact that he was calling on God Almighty to help me with classroom management. <laughs> so the week goes on, um, and it's, you know, we get to Friday, and at that point I feel completely overwhelmed, and I no longer feel under control I often talk about how Michael, whenever it got really exciting too, he'd just start breakdancing on the floor. So that was happening by Friday afternoon. I met with the principal, Sister Pat Hall, told her that she should start looking for a replacement. I don't know how long I'm going to last. And that was the end of my first week. Now, this really isn't a story about just battling back, um, but it was not true that you couldn't make progress if the first week was really poor. Um, in different ways, I built up relationships over the year, starting with soda pop and chips with a few kids after school each Friday, and then ice skating trips with a few people each Saturday during the winter. And things slowly started to turn around. I, I think the ultimate bonding moment, though, was the chocolate sale. Uh, Sister Beverly's class had been championed for two years straight. We considered her the big gorilla. And we were determined to beat her, and we used her strategy of keeping the Catholic school uniforms on, going down to Wall Street, and during business rush hour, having the kids. And they were such good salespeople, they could use those voices like, please, sir, can you buy a chocolate to uh, help my school in the South Bronx? And we made all kinds of money. And when the moment came to announcing the winner, when we heard Sister Beverly was second, we knew what was going to happen. And when they announced our class, the entire student, you know, the entire class dove into the middle of the room like they do when someone wins the World Series. <laughs> now, the year continued to be difficult, but when I got to that last day and when we got to the last 15 minutes, spontaneously some students wanted to step up and talk about what the year meant to them. And they were giving these little speeches, thanking their classmates and me and what they learned. And the bell rang, 12 noon, end of the school year, and we were quiet for a couple moments. 
And it was almost like we didn't want the year to end. I know I didn't want the year to end. And it really struck me at that point that I really had to stay in teaching, not because I had become good at it, but because it was really hard and very, but still very fulfilling. You're gonna be doing the same thing out in the world. Conflict is unavoidable. And if you have this attitude like, I've already accomplished and I've already faced adversity, let's make it smooth sailing now, um, most people can tell you that's not gonna happen. And what I would encourage you to start thinking about is ways to welcome that adversity and to transform it. Um, like I said, it's not a story just about facing adversity and succeeding. Um, the only way to really live happily ever after is to keep welcoming difficult times. Um, as a teacher, I've had good years and not so good years, and I think the key has always been making myself vulnerable and asking questions that I don't necessarily know the response to, taking chances with my teaching, and whenever I went into autopilot thinking that I had mastered it, the results were much more flat. There's a whitewater rafting metaphor that I used at the SSS Mako banquet um, that when I was in Pennsylvania with some of my roommates and we were traveling along the rapids, we had been told that if you're running into, gonna run into a rock and there's no chance that you can avoid it, to stay in the boat, all of you have to move to the corner of the boat where the boat is gonna hit the rock and touch the rock you know, at the point of impact. And that's the only way to stay in the boat. Notice too, it's not only facing problems, but facing them together. I um, also think, you know, I've alluded to this changing the way that you look at conflict. Uh, sometimes in our St. Olaf discussions, we are overly polite and Occasionally when there is disagreement, one person says something and someone says something in contradiction, a third person might offer, I think both, both of you are right and wanting to explain why and bridge the divide. I'm reminded of Bob Moses, uh, who is now involved in an algebra project and sees mathematics education as the new civil right but he was a field worker for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, back in the 60s. And there was a SNCC gathering, field organizers were giving speeches, and each person that stepped up talked about the problems that they had faced, the dangers that they had endured. And it almost seemed like one was trying to top, top the other in terms of the intensity of their experiences. When it came to Bob Moses' opportunity to speak, and he was a field organizer in Mississippi, which was considered at that time the most difficult, intense place, he declined to speak. And he said, I'm just eager to get back to Mississippi. As Taylor Branch writes in the first, first volume of Parting the Waters, it was almost as if he reversed the psychic balance Instead of seeing stressful situations as energy depleting, he saw them as energizing. Now, this doesn't have to be all dour either, you know, and all serious. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be Garrison Keillor's Our Lady of Perpetual Responsibility. 
I think Emma Goldman got it right when she said, if I can't dance, I don't want to be part of the revolution. The ed students I've encountered, what I'm most impressed with is how they're going into teaching for the right reasons. It's not, you know, just to feel good about themselves or anything like that, or just focused on making a difference, which is a big part of it. But they also recognize that this isn't about martyrdom, that they genuinely enjoy being with children, and they get energy from that. When they talk about being with students sometimes, I take that energy as well, and that's, again, part of why I'm at a much better place now. Um, also, there'll be different things that come up that will upset you. I remember when I was teaching at Humboldt Junior High School, they put us on probation, and we were a struggling school, but we were working hard, and the probation label wasn't very helpful for recruitment, but it didn't really affect our effort. We continued to give everything we could. But we also realized that just to complain about that, you know, we really needed to keep a sense of humor. So if life puts you on probation, you make bumper stickers. And I have, my child is on probation at Humboldt Middle School. <laughs> we didn't give these out to the children or real parents or anything, but it was a nice gift at our faculty meeting. Uh, a Gilda Radner quote that I received from an ed student, Jackie Spielman. I wanted a perfect ending. Now I've learned the hard way that some poems don't rhyme and some stories don't have a clear beginning, middle, and end. Life is about not knowing, having to change, taking the moment, and making the best of it without knowing what's going to happen next. Delicious ambiguity. Now I'm going to give you a strange metaphor um, that education students could appreciate. The zone of proximal development, or the ZBT, ZPD, courtesy of Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky. The best learning takes place in the middle of our zone. The bottom of the zone are activities that you don't need any help with, that you can just do independently. The top of the zone are activities where you have to watch the teacher or someone do it completely themselves, do all the work, do all of the thinking. Where learning best takes place is when you can contribute, but you also need help. Now, having been out there since 1987, I can tell you there are all kinds of people out there that need your help. And the wonderful thing about it is that they will help you as well. Three come to mind as I prepared this speech, and I could have talked about many more, but to go back to my working with homeless. Um, when I was a caseworker with mentally ill homeless, many of them also drug addicted, uh, one of my first assignments was to work with Gressford. Now, uh, if you were in the Columbia University area of Manhattan, Morningside Heights, you couldn't help but notice him if he was on the same block. He carried two heavy bags on his back, and he had a bunch of blankets wrapped up that he carried as well. He was massive himself, his bags were big, he almost looked like a small Volkswagen moving up the sidewalk. Now, when I started working with Gressford, in my mind, the important thing to do was to get him to let go of the bags. Not get rid of them, but to be okay with putting them in a closet and locking them up. 
because you didn't want to be parted with him. In my first week, I pushed a little too hard with that, and Gresford was extremely angry, but in a very passive-aggressive way. Um, when I would come down in the morning, he would often say, good morning, your royal highness from Germany, and Heil Hitler. He knew that I was a Forstner in German, and you know, I would kind of use the social work techniques and say, well, Gresford, you seem to be angry with me. And he'd be like, oh, no, no, not angry. Um, as the year continued, our attachment grew, and the relationship became extremely powerful for me. Um, and there was also a certain amount of trust that formed in him. Eventually, he felt comfortable enough to leave his bags in our closet, and eventually he got a single room occupancy hotel room with social workers on staff, and he was able to leave his bags in the apartment. And the first time I saw him walking down the street without his bags was a major victory in both of our lives. It was a liberation. I'm also reminded of Marcelina, who I had in my second year of teaching. She was a fifth grader at St. Luke's School. And Marcelina and I connected very quickly, and I think by the end of September, it was when she really wanted me to walk over to this housing project in the South Bronx. And we walked over to this courtyard, this asphalt courtyard, and it was the site where one of Marcelina's close friends had been killed the previous summer. And to Marcelina, this was sacred ground, and she wanted her teacher to see it. And she wanted us to be quiet for a while. Now, Marcelina, over the course of the year, didn't always rave about my teaching. She thought I taught them too much like college students. Um, I would say, too, that if, sounding a little defensive here, I thought Marcelina was a little too focused on Beverly Hills 90210. But I'll also never forget that in January, when we had a skating trip planned and my entire fifth grade homeroom was gonna go, um, skating Central Park on a Saturday, Marcelina was in a difficult spot. Uh, all of her close friends were shunning her. There wasn't anything I felt like I could do about it or I was trying but not succeeding. And so for Marcelina to go on the skating trip and spend more time being shunned know, incredibly painful prospect. She chose to go with her stepmom, take the subway up with us, and then leave after a couple hours. And for me, having her there, and, you know, she said a couple times that I want to go ice skating with my teacher. And for her, despite all of that pain, to choose to still go there for a while was an act of courage that inspires me still today. The last person I'm going to talk about might not be what you're expecting. We've been out in New York for much of this talk, but it is a St. Olaf student representative of other St. Olaf students. On reading day this year, one of my former students was walking up the stairs. I know that her mother has been battling breast cancer, and when I started to talk to her, I found out that she was a close friend of Veronica, who tragically passed away 
right before finals, St. Olaf's sophomore. And to see the pain in her eyes and in her voice, and then after finishing talking, to see her go back into finals mode because she just wanted to finish her finals. Um, just knowing that many of us pass by people like that. Many Olis saw this person and didn't realize how she was so directly touched by this horrible loss. Even in the chapel today, there's unspoken pain that's in this room. And to have an awareness, you know, and it also could be in you, but to have this awareness that there is hurt and that there's people that we can help everywhere. I um, often thought I was the big shot in New York City helping the homeless. And remember when my father um, retired from AT&T management and just for a little fishing money and hunting money, he worked at Walmart and was working part-time for just a few extra hours. And I wasn't even completely sure if I wanted him working there. I was like, you're retired, you don't need to be working at Walmart. And then finding out how there was a man there who had lost his wife and every afternoon came to see my dad just to talk to him because he was lonely. In a time where a person who was disabled was going to buy a fishing rod and kind of the cheap Snoopy kind. And my dad being the fisherman said, no, no, you don't need that one. And used some of his own money to buy a better rod for the student. We can minister to people everywhere at any time. Also, I, I'm reminded, you know, when I talk to St. Olaf students, besides the intense pain that some of us go through, just the everyday pain, St. Olaf certainly is a reflection of our larger culture. I remember one of my reading classes, we were reading the book Flow, and I asked them, if, is it possible to have flow experiences at St. Olaf, where you're deeply immersed in an activity and kind of lose sense of time? And the basic answer was that it's very difficult. At St. Olaf, according to the reading students, and I've had other people vouch for this, you're expected to take very hard classes and get very good grades. You're expected to be over-involved in activities. And you're expected to do it all with a big smile on your face. Um, with that kind of expectation, there are certainly stress. And so even the everyday stress of life we can help each other. Now, I want to close by going back to New York City. Um, but this time, I'm doing it with 25 Olies. In January, I took 25 St. Olaf education students and some that were considering teaching licensure afterwards to New York City. We lived in Manhattan. We worked at a school in Harlem primarily. Um, a couple other schools as well, and visited about eight or nine schools. I, I would say about the New York City group that they worked hard and they played hard as well. And I don't think that I um, could keep up with the playing as much, but I was very inspired by the working. Um, when we visited schools, their questions, their excitement. And what inspired me even further was that some of them became more interested in teaching, those that were kind of on the fence, not sure if this is right for them, not because they were inspired by teachers, but because they were disappointed by some of the teaching that went on. And one of the students said, how can I not get involved 
in these students' lives when I see them being so neglected. I also went back to the Bronx um, with a smaller group um, and junior Rachel Osi, Katie Green, Kathy Isley, and Grant Keeman all accompanied me. Um, we walked up the stairs at Cypress Avenue and there was no rat at the top to greet us, dead or alive. Some of the abandoned lots had been filled in by new apartment buildings. There was no open-air drug bazaar, which I remembered on St. Anne's Avenue. Uh, there was an unusual moment, though, where we were pulled over by the police. We were walking on the sidewalk, and the police stopped us. Surely we were in the wrong neighborhood. Surely we didn't mean to be here. Do we need help finding a subway? We also went into St. Luke's School. And I was talking to an administrative assistant while the Oles were getting yelled at by the principal. <laughs> Apparently they didn't have after-school hall passes. <laughs> so we worked that out. I headed over, we headed over to the pre-K teacher and I found out that Christina Boscana, one of my first students, was a New York City public school teacher. And we headed up to room 417. The door was locked, but I stood by it with my students for a few minutes. At least it seemed like that. And this was the place where I had dreamed big, developed bigger doubts, and learned a new way of looking at life. This is hard, and that is good. Seniors, you will face your own 417 classroom moments. I wish you well. You will find yourself in over your head. You may want to run out of the room. You will need help. Well, while I can't tell you what to do in those situations, I can tell you that I wouldn't be here today if I had chosen to walk away. I might instead be a professional wrestler. <laughs> Remember, this is hard and that is good. Go out there, make a difference, and have fun while doing so. Thank you. Uh, just one final thing, uh, the doors will be opening for the celebration banquet in a minute, but not until I say so. <laughs> um, could we finish by singing happy birthday to my mom? <laughs> and I'm not a music education student or a music major, so this is St. Olaf, so could I just do one, two, three? Her name is Joan. One, two, three. Thank you so much.